0: This program is brought to you by Bible Way Media, overseen by the elders of the Chipman Royal Church of Christ in Lee Summit, Missouri. Welcome to Opening the Scriptures today. This is Don Boyd. I want to welcome you to the program. We're going to continue our studies today in Romans chapter 12, and we'll begin in verse 6 at this time. In Romans 12, verses 6 through 8, we find that the different functions of that different members of the church have or had. Romans twelve six through eight. It says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy, according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. You know, some of these functions are miraculous, but most are not. Of course, the miraculous functions have come to an end. But whether one possessed miraculous or possesses non-miraculous gifts they're able to give themselves wholeheartedly to the work of the church in that area that fits their abilities. You know, prophecy, again, that would be a miracle, was the spiritual gift of speaking God's word by direct revelation. An example of that is given in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse three. 1 Corinthians 14, verse three says, But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. The early church did not have the completed word of God like we do, and they needed direct revelation for them to know the mind of God. When we look in Ephesians 4, look at verses 11 to 13. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. It says and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now prophecy is no longer needed because we have the completed Word of God. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 12. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12. It says, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, and that would be miraculous knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Now stopping there just for a minute. They knew the word of God in part, and they prophesied the word of God in part at that time. But then he gives a contrast in verse 10. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. So the miraculous knowledge in part, the prophesying in part, Whenever that which is perfect has come, then those parts will be done away. And that which is perfect would be the complete knowledge and the complete prophecy of the Word of God, when the Word of God is completed. Verse 11, he gives an example. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. So the example he's giving there or comparing is that when he was a child, he had a child's knowledge. He had a child's understanding. But whenever he became full grown, then he had full grown understanding and full grown knowledge. Will that compare to the prophesying part, the knowledge in part, to that which imperfect has come, the complete Word of God? Verse 12, he gives another kind of an example. He says, for now we see through a glass darkly. In other words, we're receiving the word of God piece by piece, part by part. But he goes, but then, when that which is perfect has come, face to face. In other words, then we will know. We won't have just the parts, we will have everything put together. And then he says, now I know in part, but then I shall know even as also I am known. So when the completed word of God came, all those miraculous parts would be done away because they would no longer be needed, no longer necessary. Well, the word ministry back there in Romans chapter 12 verses six through eight. We're going to go through these. There's the ministry and the teaching, the exhortation and such as that. The word ministry there is diakonia. Thayer defines diakonia this way. Service, ministry, especially of those who execute the commands of others, of those who by the command of God proclaim and promote religion among men. An example in Acts chapter 6 verse 4 is whenever the apostles were speaking there and whenever they were getting the men together to help serve the widows and things such as that to take care of the daily work the apostles said but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word the servicing of the word in Acts 12:25 Acts 12, 25, it says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So they were going on the first missionary journey there by Paul. <clears throat> In Acts 21, 19, it says there, And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry and all these words for ministry are the same word that we looked there in romans chapter 12 verse 6 john shannon made this comment concerning the word ministry and he stated and i quote therefore the meaning would be very would be the very special ability to serve minister aid help and assist others to assist them in such a way that they are built up and truly helped, unquote. The word teaching there comes from the Greek word didaskaleia, and thayer says it means teaching, instruction. You look up the word teaching, it is the ability to explain and ground people in the truth. <coughs> Excuse me. So we are to explain and to help people be grounded in the truth. In Nehemiah 8.8, we have an example of that. Nehemiah 8.8. It says, so they read in the book of the law of God distinctly. So in other words, they read where it could be understood. And gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. So giving the sense and understanding as what we are to be able to do. In Second Timothy 2, look at verses 24 to 26. 2 Timothy 2: 24 to 26. It says, "And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken by him at his will. So there's the, in verse 25, instructing in meek manner. Bill Tom Waycaster made this comment, and I quote, if you're going to teach a Bible class, then give yourself to that work. This would of necessity suggest that Bible class teachers be prompt in their preparation and diligent in their task." Unquote. The word exhortation from the Greek word paraklesis. We'll look at Thayer's third definition of paraklesis. It is exhortation, admonition, encouragement. So, exhortation is the ability to excite, motivate, encourage, and warn people. Barnabas was an encourager. When you look in Acts chapter 4 verse 36, we see an example of that. Acts chapter 4 verse 36, And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus. You know, we need people who are encouragers in the church today. We have enough of those who are discouragers. We need encouragers. And the ability to say the right thing at the right time is very important. When we look in Proverbs 25, verse 11, Proverbs 25, verse 11, it says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. You know, we need to be exhorting those, and we need to do it liberally, do it to the best of our ability, because there are those who are lost. There are those who are sick. There are those who are hurting. There are those who are discouraged. And we need to have that word fitly spoken, like it mentions here in Proverbs 25, 11. Beautiful words that will help the individual in need. Now, the word giveth there. that he giveth, let him do it with simplicity. The word giveth there, metadidomai, strong says means to give over, that is to share. And do it with simplicity, the Greek word haplotes. Strong says that word means singleness, that is subjectively sincerity, without dissimulation or self-seeking. Or objectively, generosity, copious bestowal. Thayer's second definition of haplotes is this: not self-seeking, openness of heart manifesting itself by generosity. So it gives us explanation of that. Well, one of an example of that Paul gives to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6:17 through 19. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. He says, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they may do good, That they may be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Now, communicate there means willing to aid. Verse 19, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. You know, that perfectly explains what Jesus said back there in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, where Jesus said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. In other words, that goes back to 1 Timothy uh, 18 and 19, that they do good that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. They're laying up those riches in heaven, those treasures in heaven. (laughs) In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verses 1 through 5, and I want to read the literal translation of the Bible here. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. It says, But brothers, we make known to you the grace of God which hath been given among the assemblies of Macedonia, that in much testing of trouble, the overflowing of their joy and the depth of their poverty abounded to the riches of their generosity for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they willingly gave, with much entreating, begging us to receive of us the grace and the fellowship of the ministry to the saints, and not as we hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us through the will of God. If we give ourselves to the will of God, everything we have is just gonna follow along, including our pocketbook. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse seven, 1 Corinthians 9, seven, it says, every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver, you know, What about this giving as we purpose? You see, we don't give God the leftovers. We plan our giving. And we give what we planned. And we don't do it grudgingly or of necessity. Now you think about Ananias and Sapphira, whenever they sold that piece of land there in Acts chapter 5. And they said that what they gave to the apostles to distribute was all the price of the land, but it wasn't. You see, they gave grudgingly or of maybe necessity, but they were not cheerful givers. They did not give cheerfully. Well, when we look back there in Romans chapter 12, it says there that he ruleth with diligence, the word "ruleth" there is from the Greek word "proestame." And we look at Vincent's Word Studies to give an example of that Greek word. It says there literally, "He that is placed in front." The reference is to any position involving superintendence. No special ecclesiastical offices meant. Compare Titus three eight to maintain good works. The idea of presiding over running into that of carrying on or practicing. And that's the end of the quote there on that. And then they do it with diligence from the Greek word spoudé. Diligence means speed or spoudé means speed, that is, and this is Strong's definition. That is my implication, dispatch, eagerness, earnestness. In other words, if we have been given a job to do, get it done. Don't complain, just get it done. Don't blame others if we fail to get it done. Just get it done. And then that also, he mentions there, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. The word mercy from Ela'o, and this is Strong's definition of that word. Compassionate, by word or deed, specifically by divine grace. And then that would do it with cheerfulness, halorotes. Thayer says that means cheerfulness and readiness of mind. A lot of things here that we need to learn on how to live. In you know, Matthew 5, 7, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. In Luke six thirty six, Luke six thirty six, Jesus said, Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. And then we want to look at an act of compassion. An example of that is Luke 10, 33 and 34 in the parable there of the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan. Luke 10, 33 to 34. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, the man who was injured, and saw him and had compassion on him, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. See, that's compassion in action. And our compassion must be active in order for it to be any good. You know, the success of the congregation and the church as a whole is directly proportional to the zeal of its members. A dead saint never converted a live sinner to the Lord. If we are not sold on our faith, how can we expect others to buy it? The following are essentials to our dedication and zeal. Number one, our cause is serious. The souls of mankind are at stake. Number two, the cause of Christianity is greater than our personal worldly goals. Number three, we must be willing to pay that price. What is that price? Deny ourselves and take up our crosses daily. And number four, we must practice self-control and do not let anything hinder us on our daily living for the Lord. Now, in that section that we're gonna be looking at now, it's beginning in Romans chapter 12, verse nine. There's a basic list of Christian characteristics and responsibilities. Now these are the areas we can apply the principles that Paul was just discussing previously in chapter 12. Now there are some very descriptive and strong words used to describe what we are to do and what we are not to do. And we must apply each of these to our lives if we're going to be what God demands that we be. In verses 9 through 21 of chapter 12, we see the Christian and his or her relationship with others. First of all, in verse 9, the Christian's sincere love for others and hatred of evil He says, let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. The word love there from the Greek word agape there defines as brotherly love, affection, goodwill, love, benevolence, and love feasts. So this is the kind of love that we are to have for one another. That kind of love is what the description is given in 1 Corinthians 13:4 through 7. The word love agape is translated here in the King James version as charity. It says charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaulteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. That's the kind of love that he says we're to have in Romans twelve nine, and that it be not, and that that love be without dissimulation. Well, love is the king of all Christian virtues. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, 1 Corinthians thirteen thirteen, it says, and now abideth faith hope. Charity, That's the agape love, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Love is also the bond of perfectness, Colossians 3.14, Colossians 3.14. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And God must be the primary object of our love, with others being secondary objects of our love. In Matthew 22, 36 to 40, Jesus made this comment. Matthew 22, 36 to 40. It was asked of him in verse 36, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So a Christian is to love without dissimulation. In other words, we are to love sincerely, honestly, genuinely, and truthfully. Not in a hypocritical manner, because our love is to be without hypocrisy, and that's what the word dissimulation there means. It is translated from the Greek word anapokritos, and thayer says that word means unfeigned, undisguised, sincere. Our love must be sincere. You see, hypocritical or pretended love is not love at all. In 1 John 3.18, John made this comment. 1 John 3.18, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. In other words, show our love in action. And Christians are to abhor evil. Back in chapter 12, verse 9, the second sentence says, abhor that which is evil. The word abhor, from the Greek word apis to Geo, thayer, excuse me, strong, says that means to detest utterly. Thayer says to dislike, abhor, have a horror of. Vincent's word studies adds this. Hatred expressed. Abhor that which is evil. We look around us and we see so much evil. We see abortion. We see homosexuality. We see transgenderism. We see fat-shaming, we see racism, and we see accused racism whenever it's not the case. We are to abhor those things, express hatred toward those things. And I'm not saying the people but the actions of that. Those are evil. And we are to abhor evil. We are to hate what God hates. And God gives an example of that in Psalm 97.10. Psalm 97.10, ye that love the Lord hate evil. He preserveth the soul of his saints, he delivereth them out of the hand of the wicked. If we love God, then we're going to hate evil. In Psalm 119, look at verse 104. Psalm one hundred nineteen verse one hundred four It says Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. And see there it is. We don't hate people. We hate action. We hate false ways. In Proverbs six, sixteen to nineteen, Proverbs chapter six verses sixteen to nineteen. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. So these are some things we are to hate. A proud look. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. Feet that be swift in running to mischief. A false witness that speaketh lies. And he that soweth discord among brethren. You see, our love is the desire to have the best for people. Therefore, Love hates evil because evil destroys the soul. Again, Brother John Shannon made this comment, and I quote, we should stand against evil doing all that we can to fight against illegal drugs, drunkenness, crime, immorality, abortion, ignorance, godless education, and every false Doctrine, <coughs> And then, back in Romans twelve nine, the last part, Christians are to cleave to that which is good. Again, rereading the verse, let love be without dissim- dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. The word cleave translated from the Greek word kalao, Thayer defines this way, to glue, to glue together, cement, fasten together, to join or fasten firmly together, to join oneself to, cleave to. And then the word good translated from the Greek word agathos, and we'll look at Thayer's definition of that of good constitution or nature, useful, good, pleasant, agreeable, joyful, happy, excellent, distinguished, upright, honorable. Cleave to those things. And we are to do good to all. Look at Galatians chapter six, verse 10. Galatians 6.10. It says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them which are the household of faith. Now, if we embrace things that are good and holy, our lives are going to show the difference between ourselves and the lives of those of this world. Now, in Romans 12.10 we have the Christian's attitude toward other Christians. Romans 12.10, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. Kindly affection, be kindly affection toward one another, that comes from the Greek word philostorgos. Strong's defines that word this way, cherishing one's kindred, especially parents or children, fond of natural relatives, that is fraternal toward fellow Christians. Vincent's word studies adds this, and kindly affection is having the affection of kindred. No, we're gonna be kindly affectioned in what we do and what we say to and about our brethren. And we'll be kindly affectioned to one another with brotherly love. Brotherly love from the Greek word Philadelphia. (coughs) Thayer's second definition of the word Philadelphia is this. In the New Testament, the love which Christians cherish for each other as brethren. That's the kind of love we're to have. We cherish one another. We are to feel the tenderest affection toward each other and delight in that feeling. Look at John 13, 34, and 35. John thirteen thirty-four and 35 it says a new commandment i give unto you that ye love one another as i have loved you that ye also love one another by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another you know do we treat our brothers and sisters in christ the way we should or do we let our pride or feelings of disgust and anger get in the way? Do we really treat our brothers and sisters the way that we would want them to treat us? And then he says, in honor preferring one another, there in Romans 12.10, Burton Kaufman made this comment concerning that statement. Quote, it carries setting an example and taking the lead in the honoring of others. Instead of coveting and trying to grasp honors for oneself, the Christian should rather desire to exalt his fellow Christians even taking the lead in the conveyance of such honors to them." So do we spend more time exalting our brethren or cutting them down? Brother Robert Taylor made this comment, and I quote, about preferring one another, and I quote, "'In social and business affairs, "'Christians should prefer one another, we can need a product or a service two men can supply efficiently, and at the same price. One is a Christian; one is a non-Christian. We should prefer the Christian brother over the non-Christian. Unquote. In Romans 12:11, we find that love should lead to kindness, humility, diligence in the Lord's work and fervency on spiritual things, Romans twelve eleven. It says, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. The word slothful comes from the Greek word akneros. Robertson's word picture says this is what that word is old adjective from ak-na-o, to hesitate to be slow slow and pokey being lazy is basically what it is don't be lazy in business and that's an interesting way to translate that but the word business there is translated from the Greek word spoudé. and Thayer defines it this way haste with haste, earnestness, diligence, earnestness in accomplishing, promoting, or striving after anything. So don't be pokey in our haste or our earnestness to do something. But then he says, fervent in spirit. Fervent from the Greek word zeo. There's 1B2 definition. Fervent in spirit said of zeal for what is good. In other words, be zealous for good. William Barclay made this comment, and I quote, We must not be sluggish in zeal. There is a certain intensity in the Christian life. There is no room for lethargy in it. The Christian cannot take things in an easy going way for the world is always a battleground between good and evil. The time is short and life is a preparation for eternity. The Christian may burn out but he must not rust out. Unquote <laughs> in Colossians three, twenty three and twenty four we have an example of what Paul's talking about there. Colossians three twenty three and twenty four and whatsoever ye do, your business, whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance for ye serve the Lord Christ. In Romans 12, verse 12, we're going to find things that will help us conquer the trials of this life. Romans 12, 12. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Rejoicing, you think about rejoicing in hope our hope reaches beyond this present life look at hebrews 6:18 through 20 hebrews 6:18 through 20 it says that by two immutable things which in which it is impossible for god to lie we might have a strong consolation or encouragement who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Whether the forerunner for us is entered, or is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we think about hope as an anchor whenever you're in a, a boat and you want to anchor somewhere for to fish or whatever you put the anchor into the water and it goes out of sight. And whenever it goes to the bottom it will hold you there most of the time I guess you would say. But our, But if you just leave the anchor in the boat where you can see it The anchor does you no good. It's the same thing about our hope. If our hope is anchored within the veil, the veil of heaven, the veil where we cannot see. Our hope, we cannot see where the anchor is holding. We know that it's holding in heaven, but we can't see it. But, if our hope is only here, on this earth where we can see that hope does us no good. So our hope must be behind the veil where Jesus is. That's what verse twenty says. So that's in heaven. you know an an unknown writer made this comment, and I quote, other men see only a hopeless end but the christian rejoices in an endless hope unquote. what about that hopeless end i want to read a statement from bertrand russell bertrand russell published a number of books on logic the theory of knowledge and many other topics and one of the most important logicians of the 20th century, and that's found on the website, www.groups.dcs.st. But I want to read this quote from Bertrand Russell, and I quote, The life of man is a long march through the night, surrounded by invisible fo- foes, tortured by weariness and pain, towards a goal that few can hope to reach and where none can tarry long. One by one as they march, our comrades vanish from our sight, seized by the silent orders of omnipotent death. Brief and powerless is man's life. On his and all his race, the slow, sure doom falls, pitiless and dark. Blind to good and evil, reckless of destruction, omnipotent matter rolls on its relentless way. For man condemned to lose his dearest tomorrow himself to pass through the fates of darkness, it remains only to cherish ere yet the blow falls, the lofty thoughts that ennoble his little day." Unquote. You talk about someone who has the thought of a hopeless end, he did. But we can rejoice in that endless hope that we talked about. Now he mentions there in Romans twelve twelve, patient in tribulation. The word patient from the Greek word hopomoneo Thayer's second A definition of that word is to preserve under misfortunes and trials to hold fast to one's faith in Christ. Holding fast, that's hupomoneo. In tribulation, the word thlipsis, Thayer's second definition, metaphorically, oppression, affliction, tribulation, distress, straits. Moses Laird, or excuse me, Moses Lard made this comment on that, and I quote, Heroic endurance amidst sharp distress is of the essence of his religion, unquote. You know, our patience in tribulation helps us to develop greater patience. In Romans 5, look at verses 3 and 4. Romans 5, 3 and 4 says and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, or approvedness, and experience hope. In James one, two through four, it says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, or trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And then he says, continuing instant in prayer. That just speaks of the regularity of prayer. It is an intense necessity. Look at Ephesians 6.18. Ephesians 6.18 says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto, with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. John Shannon made this comment, and I quote, Christians should stay in constant communication with the Lord, depending on Him to supply the strength for walking through the trails of daily living, unquote we're going to put a stop right here on the lesson this week. And Lord willing, next time we will continue with Romans 12:13 and the ways that we are to apply the things that Paul had been discussing earlier in chapter 12. But again, this is Don Boyd. And I want to thank you for tuning in to Opening the Scriptures. And I look forward to being with you next time. We thank you for joining us today. We hope you have enjoyed this program. You can find out more about Bible Media by visiting us at BibleWayMedia.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find all of our podcasts and all major podcast platforms. As always, we thank you for listening.